Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast. I'm John, your host, and I am sitting here in a pine forest at Tall Timbers, Maryland with my cousin, Catherine. Good morning. Welcome back to the show. And walking up right now also is Catherine's crazy heterochromatic dog, Luna. Hi, Luna. Heterochromatic. She has one brown eye, one eye that looks like the moon, hence the name Luna. And she's also a lunatic. She also just rolled in dead fish. Mmm. Delicious. Possibly a dead fish that was dropped by a blue heron. Because we are right near um, a blue heron rookery in the tall pines here. And uh, that's the subject of today's bird. The blue heron. Woohoo. Yeah. And uh, I just want to do some shout outs while we're here too. To uh, Catherine's mom. My Aunt Sue, who's a listener, and Mark, her husband. Hi, guys. Um, who else should we shout out? My mom. Yes, Aunt Lori. <laughs> yep, who's a listener. Um, I'll shout out um, a new listener, my friend Sam's grandpa. So welcome to the show, bud. Um, and one more shout out to Rick Meatyard, the, yes. the ultimate... Uh, cod pastor as we now call him when we told him about podcasts <laughs> yeah he uh he owns this tree farm where the loblolly pines are above and, and has a very long-term relationship with the beautiful blue herons around here yep and an eagle that is like his best friend <laughs> <laughs> who's watching us right now I'm yes sure. probably the body was watching us pissed off <laughs> but uh anyway let's get right into it on blue herons the Latin name for the blue heron is Ardea herodias. Um, these aren't very exciting scientific names. Uh, Ardea is just Latin for heron, and herodias is just Greek for heron, so their scientific name just means heron heron. <laughs> Nothing too exciting. But something way more exciting is uh, I'd like to start off the show kind of telling a myth about great blue herons, which is always a fun thing. Um, Herons feature in a lot of mythology of a lot of cultures, uh, like the Greeks and Celtics believed herons were messengers of the gods. Um, for many Native American peoples that would be encountering the great blue heron, uh, the herons represented patience, um, which is pretty obvious when you see a heron when they're fishing. They stand still and they stare at the water until prey comes by and then snap it up. Um, for the Algonquin people of the eastern coast of the U.S., um, herons also represented wisdom. And this cultural story will demonstrate why the heron represents wisdom. So Big Blue Heron was standing in the marsh, staring at his reflection in the water, when suddenly he heard a noise. He lifted his head to listen and spotted two little weasels coming along the river. 
As he listened to the weasel chatter, it became apparent they were a mother and son. The pair spotted the heron, and the son exclaimed, Look, Mama, what a beautiful big bird person. (laughs) (laughs) He is called Blue Heron, son. He carries his head high. Yes, mother, he stands as tall as a tree. Were I so tall, I would carry you across this swift water. Heron was pleased that the weasels were so complimentary. He loved animals talking about how big he was. He bent down low and spoke to the two little weasels. I will help you get across. See that tree that has fallen down in the river? I will stand on the end of it and stretch myself out, planting my bill on the opposite bank. This will create a bridge that you can walk across. The heron flew over to the half-sunken tree trunk, grabbed on with his feet, and stretched forward, planting his bill firmly on the opposite bank. The weasel mother and son ran nimbly across his back, staying nice and dry, and thanked him profusely before going on their way. Old Wolf had stood in the shadows of the trees, watching the whole crossing unfold. Do you think Old Wolf is going to be a good guy or a bad guy? Um, just sounds pretty daunting. I think he's a bad guy. <laughs> it sounds like a bad guy. Who knew that the weasels were going to be so nice and pleasant? <laughs> Old Wolf had stood in the shadows of the trees, watching the whole crossing unfold, and now came forward to Blue Heron, saying, Now I know why the Blue Herons are in the marsh, so you can act as bridges for other persons to cross. I am old and my bones ache. Lie down on the water and make a bridge for me. Blue Heron obviously didn't like being commanded like this. Um, Or told he's only good for making bridges, so he became angry. Old Wolf, realizing the mistake, decided to use honeyed words. You are big and strong, Blue Heron. That is why your body makes such a fine bridge. You could carry me across like a feather. Blue Heron now smiled at Old Wolf and said, You're right, I am very big and strong. Here, get on my back and I'll walk you across the river. I wonder what a heron would look like smiling. Probably I was terrifying. trying to envision <laughs> a smiling bill. Old Wolf snickered to himself, thinking he had tricked the foolish big bird. He jumped onto the heron's back and began wading out into the water. When it was in the middle of the river, heron stopped and said, Old Wolf, you are wrong. I am not strong enough to carry you. To make it the whole way across, you would need two herons. Since there is only one of me, I can only take you halfway. With that, Heron rolled his body over, dumping Old Wolf into the river where he drowned. (laughs) Since that day, no wolf has ever trusted a heron. Wow. So there you go. I didn't see it going that way. (laughs) Yeah. No, Heron Heron was going for the kill. He was pissed that uh, he was belittled like that. Um... But I always love Native American stories. I always say this every time I, I tell them. But, um, yeah, I mean, a heron looks, like, so big. Like, you know, a wolf could probably ride across on him. But uh, Luna could. Yeah, Luna could ride across on a heron. I also realized we didn't totally set up where we're recording from. You'll probably hear some ospreys in the background. There is an active, lots of active osprey nests, and they're very vocal. And we did see some blue herons come and perch in a pine nearby. There's one right there. You see, oh, yeah, there's a blue heron flying over. Going out to fish. I mean, they're huge when they fly. That wingspan is, like, really impressive. Um, They have their legs, their long legs held up behind them. And unlike, like, some other birds, like um, cranes and stuff, they tuck their necks when they fly. So they look pretty compact. Um, And also we did find a broken blue heron egg on the ground and probably was raided from the nest in Eden but by the weasels by the weasels maybe all those tricky weasels I don't know how well weasels can climb trees these are pretty (laughs) tall timbers out here hey got it (laughs) um 
But the great blue heron, I mean, they're all over the United States. And if you're anywhere near water, um, fresh water, salt water, you've probably seen them. They're pretty conspicuous. They're a huge wading bird. They're like, get up to, I don't know, like four and a half, five feet. Um, and they're often found in the shallows, on creeks, rivers, lakes. I've seen them described as an old man in a gray cloak, which I think is a perfect description because they kind of are that blue-gray color. Their wing, their huge wings kind of hang down over their body. They look like they're just like wrapped up in a coat by the water. And uh, males are slightly larger than females, but other than that, males and females look pretty similar. They're found all across the U.S. and Mexico, wherever there's water with fish, frogs, or other aquatic food items to eat. Um, their northern part of their range extends up into Canada. Um, it's way more migratory up there. Uh, in the you know winter time, it needs to uh, travel down south. But throughout most of its range, it can last throughout the winter there. Basically, if the waters freeze in the winter, then it needs to move farther south so that it's able to hunt. Kind of like the kingfisher when I talked about in the kingfisher episode. Um, they sometimes migrate all the way down to South America, and sometimes they also get blown off course, and they've been spotted in Iceland, Greenland, England, Spain, and even as far away as Hawaii. Wow. Yeah. That's, I feel like if I'm a heron and I end up in Hawaii, I'd be pretty happy. I probably wouldn't leave. <laughs> but yeah, let's talk about their feeding, because this is how they're the most conspicuous. They're in the shallows, and they're walking around, and... Um, I mean, they're pretty fucking obvious, like you can't miss them, um, whether like you're in a boat or just like fishing from the shore. Um, they're just so gigantic. They look like dinosaurs. And they're usually eating like little aquatic critters, um, but they also will glean large insects from fields um, or even grab small mammals like mice and voles. So sometimes you'll see them like kind of on like farmland or field land and like they're looking to snatch up some little stuff to eat. Surf and turf. Yeah, surf and turf. <laughs> I saw accounts of them swallowing mammalian prey as large as muskrats. Yeah, wow. and eastern cottontails too. So, sorry bunnies, um, you're on the menu for these guys. My goodness. I think basically anything that they can catch is on the menu for them. So they're pretty opportunistic when yeah. it comes maybe even to hard times. They make sure they find something. Oh, yeah. They're they're looking to eat. They <laughs> um, And their feeding strategy is usually just a sit-and-wait strategy. They'll stalk the shoreline looking for good fishing spots. Um, and then they'll kind of sit still in that fishing spot and wait for a fish to come by and then stab down at it with their bill. Um, yeah, you'll see them when they walk, they're kind of do like a very, st like staccato method, mm -hmm. I guess I would say. And like, yeah, their neck, uh, Catherine's bobbing her neck. I'm acting it out again. Yeah. Like last <laughs> podcast I was on, you can't see this. But, <laughs> <laughs> but just imagine it. Just imagine us sitting in a pine forest in a very light rain. Um, <laughs> Catherine's got the big goofy uh, headphones on <laughs> and is holding the microphone yep. while I try to protect my laptop screen. <laughs> Just envision. Yes. I think my favorite thing too about when they're eating, if if you do frighten them or come up to them, they like they let you know about it when oh, they take yeah. off. That's my most birds. You know, they just flee from the scene. No, these guys the whole t the whole way are like. Yeah, that big old yeah call like a yeah. pterodactyl, I guess. Yeah, yeah, they I let know. You know. Yep. I respect that. Yeah, and we're hoping that maybe we get some vocalizations from them. 
uh, here. Luna, do you have something to say? She's just rolling no. a few things. She's just walking around. <laughs> so when they feed, when you see them stab down at fish, they're usually not actually skewering the fish. Like sometimes they do, but usually they're trying to use their bill like a pair of scissors to close on on the fish. And if the prey that they catch is less than 10 centimeters, the heron will manipulate it in its bill a lot. You'll see them just like holding the food item and kind of rolling it around in their bill. Um, and they do this not just to position the fish head first so that it, you know, will slide down their gullet, um, but also they break off the spines of the fish. If it's a larger prey item, um, it may require them retreating to a dry spot and then dropping the fish onto the ground. And then they'll kind of manipulate it with their bill on the ground or sometimes stab it a couple times to kill or weaken it um, before they swallow it. And they will actually change the way that they stab or swallow or manipulate their prey depending on the species and the fish's body shape and size and location of the spine. So um, there's something called spinal erection mechanism. Um, have Dirty you ever heard podcast. this in your spinal erections? No. <laughs> so fish, like if you've ever caught a fish, you know, when they're threatened, you see them like raise their spines, you know, on their back. And so like there's a series of like physical and also like neural mechanisms that go into this. And some fish like um, when they're dead, their spines will drop down. Others, other fish, like their spines lock into place. So even after they're dead, their spines still stay really pointy. So obviously if you're a heron, you catch a fish and like, like they know the species and they're like, oh, this is one like, once it's dead, it's, it's limp. Like that spinal erection's gone. Um, so then it'll just stab it and kill it. So then it's easy to swallow. The spines don't get in the way. But if it's like, oh, fuck, this one, it's like the one that, you know, the spines lock when it's dead. So instead, they have to break off the spines. Wow, fascinating. Yeah. So they really are expert fishermen. They not only are good at catching these guys, but, like, they know what type of fish it is, too. Hmm. Uh, they also have several other creative feeding strategies. Um, if a dead fish is floating on the water, they may hover over it and pick it up with their feet and then bring it over to eat. They also will dive into the water and swim, too, almost similar to a cormorant. Wow. Uh, yeah, which, like, you wouldn't think a bird this big would, like, want to get its feathers wet. But no, like, they'll dive in. Um, I've seen accounts of them diving in off of uh, docks. Um, and sometimes they will dive in bill first, but also sometimes they just jump in feet first, <laughs> which is probably hilarious a to watch. A fabulous thing to imagine. Yes. Yeah. Cannonball. Yeah. <laughs> And I talked about how they eat mammals, they eat fish, they eat amphibians, but birds aren't off the menu either. Um, they've been observed grabbing flying prey like starlings and swallows out of the air. Um, they've been observed killing waterfowl like rails, stilts, and grebes. Grebes, grebs. <laughs> I still that have a hard time saying it. Grebe, grub. Wow, like a silent killer in our midst. I thought they were just eating, you know, nice little fish. No. no these guys are taking down... Yeah, apparently the rail thing is a big problem. Like I've seen uh, birders like lament um, that herons will just go into where rails are nesting and just like devour the young. And like, wow. you know, sometimes it's like an endangered species or something. And they're like, well, what do we do? <laughs> like, should we protect them or is this just, you know, nature? Like, um, yeah, so they can be pretty vicious towards their other feathered friends. Do you know, like in what you've, what you've learned, if this is like certain regions that eat different things or is it mostly just individual herons are pretty, I mean, opportunistic eaters and they'll take on whatever they need? to 
It, um, I mean, it is, uh, it's kind of both. So like within whatever region they are, they're going to be opportunistic and take, uh, whatever food items they can. And also like, it's going to be whatever's easiest too, because as we'll talk about, like these guys are like sometimes really on the edge of starvation a lot of times, especially when they are raising fish or raising fish, especially when they're raising chicks. Um, it, they sometimes have a really hard time getting enough fish or they like eat so many fish in the area around their nest that they have to turn to some other strategies too, to augment everything. Um, and then obviously if they're like, you know, uh, away from a marsh, like they're more inland, like on some streams, like, and maybe there's a farm nearby, they're going to try to take advantage of whatever prey they can find, like on the farm, you know, the mice, the voles. Um, so yeah, it is a little bit of both, like in whatever region they're in, they're going to be opportunistic and utilize whatever food items they can. Interesting. Yeah. And while killing these other birds, they are, you know, doing it for food or at least like attempting to eat them. Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of accounts where they kill something like their eyes are way bigger than their stomachs. You see this with fish all the time. They kill something and it's like way too big for them to eat. And like they've done this like with a, a rail or a duck or something that's just like they kill it and then they're like try to eat it and it's way too big and then it's just kind of a useless kill. So yeah, they're Easter. savage. <laughs> savage herons. Um, also sometimes they just get bad tempered and will just like kill stuff. There's these accounts of ducks that just like get a little too close to a heron. Like usually they seem so peaceful, you know, yes. but like they're, I don't know, sometimes I guess they just get in a bad mood and like a duck will get too close and they'll just like freaking go after it and kill it. Like, the old man in the cloak is... Yeah, the old grumpy man in a gray cloak. <laughs> Jesus, watch out for him. Like I said, they sometimes bite off more than they can chew. There's a lot of cases of herons trying to swallow large catfishes or lampreys, which uh, catfish and lampreys are kind of known for like their big spines. And they'll get lodged in the throats of the heron and then, you know, the spines will like impale out and the heron obviously will die. Um, sometimes they um, eat fish that then get lodged in their digestive tract and they, you know, die of fecal impaction, you know, like small bowel obstruction. So, uh, you know, there's skeletons of them found and they've been like impaled by whatever fish that they're trying to eat. Or um, also there's cases of um, them trying to eat uh, water snakes, you know, and uh, the snakes will then curl around their neck and strangle them while they're trying to eat them. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they're really struggling with their prey. Gosh. Yeah. They, uh, aren't a strictly like day hunting bird. They'll uh, fish during the night or the day. In tidal areas, they often preferentially feed during low tide because the water's shallower. Fish may be like trapped in a little pond or something. You know, there's more crabs scurrying around. So they have way more feeding opportunities. If they're in a non-tidal zone, like a freshwater inland pond or lake, they seem to prefer dawn and dusk for their hunting. Hmm. And when feeding, they actually will avoid shitting in the water that they're wading in because it can scare the fish away. Like, I mean, if you're a little fish and all of a sudden a giant heron turd, like, falls in the water by you, you're like, uh-oh. Alert, alert. <laughs> alert, alert. I'm leaving for many reasons. <laughs> Go. Yeah, so I think, for some reason as a kid, I think I heard an old wives' tale that, like, birds don't have sphincters so they can't control when they poop. Do you remember this? I don't know. I don't think I knew that. Oh, really? I remember hearing that as a kid or whatever. And but probably they... just because sphincter was a fun word to say. <laughs> I do remember you running about 
As a child yelling. <laughs> running around, sphincter! <laughs> I think it was my first word, actually. I don't know, Mom, can you uh, chime in on this? <laughs> She's definitely going to verify that this was not your first word. <laughs> yeah, so like, they'll avoid um, shitting in the water and scaring the fish, so they'll actually go walk up to land, do a little poop on dry land, and then walk back into the water. <laughs> Good, they got that right. <laughs> um... Any other pointers on uh, on them feeding? Have you seen any cool uh, feeding behaviors? Or No, just living on a boat, I see them, you know, fishing off the back of boats yeah. a lot, like off of swim platforms. And they just seem, you know, pretty clever on how they choose to view the water. They have this nice long neck, so they're usually, like, looking down in the shallows. But I like when they position themselves just a bit higher to, like, yeah. really get that, you know, vantage point. And mm-hmm. um, they do not like fish like uh, an osprey would right like there's no dive fishing from no so yeah i haven't seen anything where they so like they will fly in the sky and sometimes pick stuff off with their bills from the water or grab it with their legs but yeah uh they don't dive in from flight yeah Yeah. as far as i could see but they will dive from like shore from like a tree branch or something right yeah that's what i imagine too speaking of their feeding too our cover art is um going to be a great photo that um Uncle Frank, Lauren's uncle, um, took of a um, blue heron catching and eating a very large catfish. I hope it didn't lodge in his throat because <laughs> it's a monster. So wow. definitely check out that picture. Um, and he took that uh, in Seaford, Virginia, nice. where there's definitely lots of blue herons. So anyway, let's talk about the vocalizations of these birds. We kind of already talked about when they're disturbed and they're angry, they give that freaking pterodactyl squawk, like squawk. squawk like it is it's like back of the throat like yeah you're like holy shit this is a dinosaur you I'm know in Jurassic Park yeah I mean <laughs> I've found that this sound can kind of be like very frightening or eerie if you're like out on the water on a foggy day, you know, Mm -hmm. and you hear it, then you really get the whole Jurassic Park effect. (laughs) But more often this bird is seen and not heard, you know, usually they're pretty silent stalking in the, in the, uh, water and everything. They can be pretty noisy on their breeding ground when they have active nests going and big rookeries. Um, Unfortunately, we're not hearing much from the blue heron nest that's near us, but... They're out out for the day. Yeah, maybe they saw Luna and just decided to to keep quiet. Maybe. They will give a greeting call. What, what's that? Oh, we see one coming in. Oh, flying low to the water. Yeah. Oh, posting up actually right behind you, I think, to fish. Oh, cool. So... Yeah, we have a blue heron fishing right behind us. Um, they give a greeting call when they land on their nest. So like a mating pair, they have like a little greeting call they'll give like, oh, hey, I got the nest. You go on out and fish, honey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they also do some cluck calls when they're disturbed. Um, Often the cluck will build up to a crescendo call and then they'll do the squawking alarm calls if they continue to be threatened. And then also the bill clapping, uh, which Catherine heard the other day. Yeah, which I learned is can be like to attract a mate, but also um, is sort of a greeting, mm-hmm. like 
it sounds to me like when you snap a container lid on, like a plastic yeah. container thing, it's just sort of like that, like a deep bill clap. And it's really cool to hear. I had to look up and really think about what was going on. And, <laughs> but it was neat. Every nest was sort of just like greeting their mate or trying to call someone in. Yeah. This really interesting sound. Pretty cool. Uh, the chicks are also very noisy when they beg for food. And so the breeding of these birds, um, we've kind of mentioned the rookeries and we're sitting under a nest right now which is in the top of a very tall pine tree. They prefer to nest in colonies of many blue herons um, that nest uh, close together, usually in trees. They tend to place these rookeries in the middle of good feeding grounds like open wetlands or swamps and they especially choose areas that are away from human disturbances. Although not away from osprey disturbances. Rude. <laughs> What is that guy doing? I don't know. Is he mad at us? Is he right there? Yeah, it's like right in the tree. He's probably upset with us. I think it's Luna. <laughs> or Luna, yeah. Old Wolf. That's true. Old Wolf is looking on. She's looking for a ride across the river. <laughs> but um, yeah, they really don't like people near their nests. Um, and so like they choose areas that are away from homes, that are away from roads, and that are usually surrounded by water. Like the main nest predators of these guys, uh, there's of course mammalian predators like raccoons and possums. So you'll see them often try to choose to nest on uh, like areas that have like water around them or something like that, that you know are gonna be less attractive for a, you know, raccoons don't like to get their paws wet, so. <laughs> um, and, uh, there are accounts, though, of whole colonies of parents abandoning their nests, and even their young, when they're confronted by major human intrusions. Wow. One study I read um, that was conducted in my neck of the woods in the lower Chesapeake Bay found that uh, buildings were the greatest deterrent for blue heron colonies, and then busy paved roads were kind of the next biggest deterrent. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's sad to think about. Yeah, it is. Um, and, I mean, you think about so much stuff getting built up, like, and even if, like, I don't know, you think, oh, they have woods right there, there's good, you know, breeding area for them, they can just use that, but, like, if there's a busy road nearby, like, no, it's still, even though they have the, the trees, it's still not a good area for them. Yeah. Um, even just a person walking underneath their nest can really disturb them. Um, fortunately, though, boating appears to not affect heron colonies much, um, and, like, they kind of know that the boats got to stay on the water, so they don't really see them as a threat. Um, also, aircraft, for some reason, doesn't appear to be a big threat to them. Even they've done experiments with helicopters and seeing how close they get before it disturbs them, and, like, the helicopters can get pretty close, so wow. I don't know. They, <laughs> they're kind of a bit picky and choosy about yeah. what actually bothers them. But that's good to know. I'll lessen my hikes back here. During yeah. The, during the breeding and uh, yeah. this season. Or just do a respectful distance. Like, yeah, we're not, you know, we're near the nest, but we're not directly under it bothering yeah. them. So, that's true. yeah, I think, I think that's okay. Um, each colony will choose a specific type of vegetation to nest in, and then everyone in the colony will kind of nest the same way. Cool. So, like, out here, this is all loblolly pines, and all the colonies seem to nest in the top of the loblolly pines here. 
Um, it can vary drastically between different colonies, though, where they choose to nest at. Like, they may pick a certain species of tree, like uh, maybe dead oaks, and all of them will nest in dead oaks, even though there's other trees nearby that are appropriate. Hmm. Um, and every bird um, in that colony will kind of nest the same way in the treetops or, like, mid-canopy. Um, sometimes a colony chooses an area with a lot of scrub brush, and so the heron nest will be, like, just a few feet off the ground. Sometimes they will net all just nest on the ground, like on, like, a tidal marsh or something. Wow. Um, and colonies can sometimes be densely packed, like almost all of them in like a, just a couple trees nesting almost right on top of each other. Um, or they can be more spread out, like kind of so far what we've seen out here this year, at least they seem pretty spread out. Yeah. What all the colonies do have in common though, is that they are far away from human disturbances and in an area that's kind of protected from predators. I think, oh, that's a brown headed nut hatch. Which I also have an episode on, but yeah, they love the pine trees. Hello, old friend. Hello, bud. Do you know of any specific types of birds that are most intimidating or like that get in the way of their natural life? I mean, are there... Yeah. Like food competition, obviously, I see osprey and probably some eagles sometimes, but... Yep. Um... Yeah, adult herons um, even aren't safe from predatory birds. Bald eagles, golden eagles, um, and even smaller birds like Harris's hawk have all been observed killing um, adult blue herons. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, most predation of these guys occurs when they are eggs or nestlings. Um, you know, crows, vultures, raccoons, possums, like I said, love to eat the heron eggs mm -hmm. and take nestlings. Um, but great horned owls and bald eagles are, like, really two of the big ones that, like, Herons really don't like these guys. Like, they consistently prey on heron nestlings, um, and they're so hated by colonies that, like, if a, a great horned owl or a bald eagle is, like, you know, moves in nearby, makes a nest nearby to a colony, or, like, consistently, uh, um, you know, is preying on them, then, like, the colony may just, like, up and move. Wow. And we were talking maybe that might be why this area doesn't have as many nests as it used to in the past, because... You've been hearing a lot of great horned owls. Yeah, Al Pacino and Al Green out there. <laughs> hoot hoot! All, we do. We have quite a few great horned owls. And in the years past, I mentioned there were like these rookeries were packed, and yeah, it just seems a little bit different. So could be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And now maybe the great horned owls—they got fat and happy off the great blue herons. The great blue herons left, went somewhere else, and so. I don't know, maybe they'll come back after the great horned owls kind of move on a little bit now that they can't eat the, the giant great blue heron eggs. Yeah. I mean, if I was a bird of prey, like, a great blue heron nestling is probably a pretty good snack. Like, I'm sure. Yeah, that thing's pretty big. So, as far as with starting their nests, um, the males are the first to arrive at nest sites in mid-February and mid-March, and then they begin to court females that are kind of passing by. Um, so herons are monogamous during a breeding season, but each year they'll pick new mates. And then during the winter, they're just loners. Like they don't want to hang out with anyone. Like it's, they just want to sit and fish by themselves. <laughs> they're um, that guy at the bar. Yeah. They're that guy at the, <laughs> um, both males and females plumage changes, um, to their sexiest colors, um, around breeding season, their bills and legs become orange or pink. And they grow the plumes on their heads. Um, these are like the kind of black uh, plumes that are uh, almost like a crest on their head. Yeah, they're beautiful. And uh, 
they mark their sexual maturity. So you can tell a juvenile uh, blue heron because they don't have those plumes. And they don't grow them until their second year of life. Um, but often it takes until their third year till they really, like, find a mate, you know. The females want some experience. <laughs> <laughs> they know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, courtship displays are pretty elaborate in this species. Males will stretch their necks and point their bills to the sky um, and display the checkerboard pattern of feathers on their neck. And then also they'll erect up their plumes to attract the females. Um, they'll do a number of vocalizations to woo the women. They'll do that bill uh, clapping behavior. Um, and they also make a call described as goo goo. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard that one. Goo goo, baby. <laughs> Males will also sometimes fight over females, too. Um, John James Audubon describes herons dueling with their long bills the way an expert swordsman would parry and thrust. They don't appear to ever kill each other in these fights, though, but sometimes they can get a little vicious. And since they're, you know, kind of solitary throughout the whole winter, they do have a little bit of trouble adjusting to domestic life once they start nesting together. Often early on in the breeding season, males will chase the female away from the nest, um, but gradually become a little less aggressive. <laughs> so like, I don't know, they're used to their little bachelor pad, and then the female comes in and she's like, what, you're just shitting in the nest? Like, Clean. at least take that outside. Get your dirty socks <laughs> off the railing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do your ditches. Yeah. We call all the, the big, like, male uh, blue herons here Herc. Herc? Yep, Rick has called, they're all Herc. They're so all if you see, see a big guy <laughs> fishing on the shoreline, that's Herc. I think Herc is actually still fishing behind you. Oh, yeah. Hopefully he gets some luck. I hope so. Yeah. I think the tide's falling right now, so it's probably a good time for a heron. Mm-hmm. And there's some Canada geese. Everything but blue herons we've been hearing right now. <laughs> yep. You thought maybe you'd hear blue heron, but you're feeling hearing... It's usually like that it's when I record. <laughs> like, whatever I want. One, it's always raining. Uh, <laughs> two, whatever bird I want to record is like, just, nope, I'm quiet today. Nature knows. <laughs> yeah. It, yep. Uh, the male will deliver uh, sticks to the female for nest construction. Uh, these sticks may be picked up from the ground or stolen from nests of other herons or from osprey or eagle nests. The nests will vary a lot depending on where the heron is nesting. Sometimes they just make a little simple platform. Um, if they're nesting on the ground, they might like weave them more out of grass than sticks. Um, sometimes they'll reuse nests over and over and create giant nests, you know, similar to like the big osprey or eagle nests you see. Just looking up in the trees above us, there's some old heron nests. And they look pretty flimsy, like it's literally just a little flat platform of sticks. Like, uh, I don't know. Driftwoody kind of sticks, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I'd want to be raised in that. Yeah. <laughs> when the nest is completed after a week or two of work, the herons copulate in it. Um, I won't go super into detail about bird reproductive anatomy, but the way that the heron like reproductive system works is female herons are actually able to store sperm in their oviducts. And then, like, as each egg is kind of produced, then she'll, boop, fertilize it. So, yeah, she'll hold on to that sperm. <laughs> the female usually lays around three eggs, rarely as many as six. Eggs are a pale blue color um, and honestly look like giant robin's eggs. Um, and they're, oh. depending, I guess, on what time or how long yeah. they're, they're there and what kind of nutrients the mom has. But it's pretty, like, breakable 
light shell. Yeah. Yeah, we're so we're holding the shell that we found on the ground. It's kind of a greenish blue, but like it would appear white if you didn't look at it closely. And yeah, it's not super strong, but yeah. Yeah. I'm very glossy on the inside. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. beautiful. After about 30 days of incubation, uh, the babies uh, crack out of the eggs. Um, they're gray, um, and they have open blue eyes. They are very vocal and demanding of their parents, um, and their parents will regurgitate food um, to them at first, and then gradually start uh, bringing them larger and larger fish as they grow. And uh, they'll regurgitate those fish up nearly whole for them. They don't, like, carry it to the nest the way, like, an osprey would, you know, okay. with its talons. Yeah. Males and females will take turns gathering food while the other will watch over the nest. And like I said, they'll greet each other upon return to the nest with a shortened version of, like, their original courtship display. So they might stretch their necks up in the air, like, do a little bill clap, like, you know, whatever they first fell in love to, they'll do, like, a little version of that um, each time they switch off at the nest. Aww. They play their song. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, their first dance song or something. <laughs> um, blue heron rookeries can contain um, as many as 500 nests. Um, and the rookeries underneath them are a feasting ground for predators. <laughs> They'll gather on the nests and eat anything that falls from the trees, whether that's like a half-eaten fish or maybe a luckless baby heron. In the northern U.S., wolf packs and black bears are known to camp out under heron rookeries. Whoa. On the Suwannee River in North Florida, it was noted that the cottonmouths were particularly large and fat around heron rookeries. Hmm. Um, and there also appears to be a symbiotic relationship um, between these predators and, um, and the herons. Um, because while they'll feast on anything that falls from the nest, like, you know, a, a poor little baby heron, they also scare away smaller predators like raccoons or possums. <laughs> on a commercial gator farm in Florida... Gator farmers observed that every time they moved the gators to a new pond, the herons would seem to follow them and prefer to nest over gator-filled waters. Wow. Which, yeah, you would think, like, maybe the gators are just, like, you know, profiting off of the herons. But I don't know. I mean, the herons have figured out it works for their advantage. Yeah. That's neat. Not all eggs hatch or nestlings survive, though. On average, only two to three nestlings grow to adulthood and leave the nest. The more aggressive chick will often hoard all the food and may even push out its weaker siblings to the gators below. Like. Yeah, right. It's very <laughs> dramatic. Bye, brother. There. Uh, I would like this cheeseburger. Thank you. <laughs> they usually are ready to leave the nest around 49 to 81 days. Um, once the young leave, so do the parents. They've worked so hard feeding their young that often the waters around the nest are just totally fished out. Wow. So I guess probably around heron rookeries is not a good place to go fishing. Great point, yes. <laughs> um, even after leaving the nest, um, first-year-old herons... Oh, There's a wolf. Luna's got the zoomies. A wet Luna. <laughs> even after leaving the nest, um, first-year-old herons um, got it pretty hard. Um, one study showed 79% of banded and recovered blue herons died within the first year of leaving their nest with an average annual mortality of 29%. Hmm. So yeah, like that first year, I think they're still learning how to catch food. Like, I mean, it's hard and they're probably young, they're impatient. So um, yeah, they really have a high mortality rate um, in that first year. Yeah. Of note though, by the second year, um, blue herons have kind of hit their stride and their life expectancy begins to increase. Um, 
One thing I did notice from the study, it was done in the early 1900s before, you know, laws protected these birds. And as many as 25% of the herons they recovered had been shot. Hmm. So maybe the heron mortality rate is a little bit better now that we aren't just spraying them with birdshot. Yeah. Um, in the more southerly part of their range, blue herons are able to raise uh, two broods in one season. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of blue heron breeding. Um, Any observations or questions I can try to answer? (laughs) No, I'm just fascinated. The female ability to do that is incredible. Yeah. Storing the sperm and then (laughs) it's really unique. I mean, maybe it's not as unique. Like, I need to learn more about bird anatomy, but. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that, like, pretty much all heron species did this. I don't know how many other bird species also do. But, Yeah. yeah, it's pretty cool. We'll look this up. Yes, we will. Um, and herons have a lot of really cool physical adaptations that help them, uh, you know, catch fish and be successful hunters. Unlike many of the songbirds we've talked about on the show, um, herons lack oil secreting preen glands. So a lot of birds have like a little gland that secretes oil and they use that to like waterproof their feathers and to clean them. Um, instead, um, herons will have these special patches of feathers on their breasts and their belly that contained um, specialized powder down feathers. These feathers never molt, meaning they never fall out and regrow. Rather, they just are kind of like in a constant state of growing at one end and decaying at the other. Hmm. The decaying feathers will produce um, a coating similar to talcum powder, and the herons will spread it across their bodies for waterproofing and cleaning their feathers. Uh, They actually have a special adaptation on the claw on their middle toe, um, it resembles a comb when you look at it. Like the Fancy. nail kind of has like little serrations. It looks like a comb. And so they'll just like grab this powder and then comb it through their uh, feathers. Uh, the powdery texture of these patches also kind of plays some tricks with the light. And some people write that, especially like on like moonlit nights, um, the, oh man, a heron just took off from a low branch. I, they're just like so monstrous, you know. It's hard not to notice. Them. Yeah, they're quite and yeah, quiet. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, surprising how quiet they are when they fly. Um, but on moonlit nights, sometimes the way that the light reflects off of these down patches, it makes it appear like they're glowing. Ooh. The neck of the great blue heron is also specially adapted for springing forward with lightning speed to capture its prey. If you look at a heron's neck, you'll notice it kind of makes an S shape. Mm-hmm. Um, this is because of the unique orientation of the C six vertebrae. Um, If you picture a spine, you know, it goes straight up and down. However, C6 lies... I believe... That was a pissed off heron, folks. I believe it was from Luna. Uh, Oh, really? (laughs) I think he was... Herc was comfortably fishing. Luna showed up. Yeah. There we go. Well, thanks, Luna, for producing our content for the podcast. (laughs) Or the, the cod past, the as we say. <laughs> um, so s- instead of lying straight up and down, C6 is flipped on its side. So it lies horizontal instead of vertical. And um, so this helps create that S shape. And it also creates a unique like joint between C6 and C7 vertebrae. That's like a pivot point. So when the heron will push its neck forward, that C6 will flip to straight up almost like a you know a spring joint or something and just boom shoot its neck forward that is really cool yeah why don't we have one of those i know just (laughs) peck forward and grab a fry (laughs) (laughs) absolutely um 
Their neck is also cool in another way. Normally in animals, you know, the spines at the back of your neck and then your esophagus and trachea are in front. But in herons, um, along with other related birds like egrets, the esophagus and trachea actually wrap around behind the spine a short way down the neck. There's a good reason for this. As we talked when they eat, like they're often grabbing wiggly fish or like a, a snake that wants to strangle them. So they need to protect their, um, their esophagus and their trachea and put like the bony hard spine in front of those softer structures. So if the fish lashes out with a spine, it'll just uh, hit their, you know, vertebrae spine and not puncture like their throat. Wow. Yeah. Good thinking, evolution. Yeah, I know. How many herons had to get impaled for that to evolve? <laughs> yeah, it may not have taken very long. That's true. There's a lot of catfish, at least around here. I see a fisher, a herc fishing over there. Oh, okay. On the shoreline. On the opposite shore, yep. Yeah. Maybe. Yep. Standing in the water, very still. Maybe that C6 vertebrae is about to flip and... Yeah, and shoot forward. <laughs> also, their eyes are expertly adapted not just to spot fish, um, but also to work over a wide range of light conditions. Um, remember I said that they fish in the daytime as well as nighttime. Um, eyes contain two major types of cells. You've probably heard, you know, rods and cones. Rods are kind of like, they detect movement, and they're also for your, like, kind of night vision, whereas cones detect fine detail and color. The rods in heron's eyes are able to do something called retinomotor movement, uh, meaning that they will contract or elongate depending on the light conditions to allow herons to fish whether it's full daylight with a glare on the water or a dark and moonless night. Their cones are also adapted too. Um, I won't go into a ton of detail. Um, check out the Kingfisher episode. I talk a lot about bird eyes in that episode. Did we talk about bird eyes? Yeah, we talked about fovias in our bird bods episode. Yeah, we did. Yeah, when uh, Catherine was on the podcast before. Yeah, um, that, it's really cool stuff. Yeah, it is. There's just so much. Um, but um, the cone cells, um, the color sensing cells um, in heron eyes contain oil droplets on the end um, that help them see more nuanced arrays of colors and light reflections. These oil droplets also help reduce glare of the sun off the water. Um, like many birds, reptiles, and fish, um, they also don't just have single cones, like, you know, picture an ice cream cone. Um, instead of just like that classic ice cream cone, they also have cones that like split at the end. Hmm. Um, and the ends will be um, of asymmetrical lengths. So light will hit the end of that split ice cream cone in different ways, and then they're able to get even more information from that. Hmm. Yeah. And then they also have a couple tricks to um, help them spot uh, prey in water that has a, a glare on it. Sometimes they'll lift their wings and create a shadow and then they're easy, it's easier to, you know, spot a fish uh, in the shadow. Um, and then they'll also kind of turn their heads. Um, you'll see um, herons kind of look like they're eyeing with just one eye and then they'll flip their head around and eye with the other eye and they do that to help with glare too. Um, and just the facial markings, too. Um, uh, you'll notice that they have kind of some black patches around their eyes. And just like a football player would, you know, rub black streaks under to help with glare, this also helps with glare on them. Yeah. That's really cool. I know. I love just evolution and all the crazy ways animals are just, like, specially adapted. Yeah. Right, and when there's really no moon out, I mean, it, you would think it would be such a challenge to even fish, especially in the murky water like the Chesapeake. Yeah. Really, visibility is not strong. Oh, yeah, I know. But not for them. Um, we already talked about kind of the predation uh, of these guys. Um, you know, they hate 
great horned owls and bald eagles just know that um i really didn't see much about like ospreys bothering them very much which is a good thing and at least the spot we're at there's tons of ospreys and they seem to get along with the herons okay yeah um one bird they don't really get along with is brown pelicans um, I saw an account of eight brown pelicans ganging up on one poor blue heron that had caught a fish, um, and one of them even landed on its head, and that forced it to drop the fish, which the pelican then ate. Wow. Yeah, this is called kleptoparatism, and uh, yeah, um, herons can kind of be uh, victims of this. Bald eagles also, if they catch a fish, a bald eagle will chase them down to, uh, to try to get it. Mm -hmm. Herons do this to other birds too, though. Remember, herons aren't all the nicest guys either. They'll eat other birds. And um, uh, John James Audubon describes an incident where a great blue heron chased an osprey until it dropped a fish. Okay, so they dish it out too. Yeah, they dish it out too. Um, I saw an account where a great blue heron was killed and eaten by a hungry bobcat on the banks of the Colorado River. Whoa. Yeah, that must have been cool to see. Yeah, jeez. Hard winters also kill herons. Um, if there's a lot of ice or snow cover, then they are unable to find food. And since they feed on a lot of creatures, like smaller creatures, and they're kind of near the top of the food chain, um, they can accumulate high levels of toxins such as DDT, PCB, and mercury. Um, these chemicals cause thin eggshells, smaller nestlings, and even asymmetric brains. Um, luckily, you know, these chemicals have kind of been cut down on, but, um, you know, if you're downstream of like a paper mill or something, and uh, the herons there probably have thinner eggshells because a lot of um, PCB gets uh, pumped out into the water from there. Yeah. And then, you know, there's still a lot of mercury hanging around. And thankfully, DDT levels are, are like dropped a lot but right yeah and other things like farm runoff like uh, pesticides from farm runoff organo uh, phosphates those can also affect these guys too so such a direct impact yeah and right the fish they're eating oftentimes have yep. to high levels of yeah and even if it's like not a very high level in the fish you know if you're eating like 20 fish a day then you're gonna kind of accumulate a lot of it yeah. they do seem pretty resilient though um, they compensate for poisoned young or broken eggs by simply just kind of having more young. Um, I did see one account of adult heron that died from DDT poisoning, but it appears that the adults are pretty resilient too. One article I read estimated that actually having eggs helps them get rid of a lot of the poisons in their body. So kind of concentrate it into the shells or something like that. And like, hey, maybe it'll break, but then, you know, then they just have another egg and hopefully that one has a little bit less. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they get a lot of parasites from the fish they eat also. Um, they've been found to have um, schistosomiasis. Um, this is a type of blood fluke. Um, and uh, these flukes are cl classically contracted from eating infected snails. And snails are definitely on the diet for, uh, for blue mm. herons. Also, species of yeast have been found growing in herons. Um, these yeast are known to kill waterfowl, such as Muscovy ducks. Um, they seem to be a problem on like some commercial like duck farms. And uh, yeah, it's like a bloodborne yeast, which is kind of weird. Oh, so yeah. yeah. Um, the uh, nematode um, Eustronga lydiasis um, can be pretty devastating to infected herons. Yes, yeah, so a nematode, they're like these worms and they burrow into the bodies and they invade their body cavities and will even like burrow into their organs. Um, like any animal, they can also get tumors. Um, I saw one pretty grisly account where a heron had developed a tumor behind its eye. Oh, Luna. Luna's pissing the Canada geese off. 
Luna. Oh, she's swimming. Oh, after. she's swimming after the Canada geese. <laughs> she never swims. Luna, you're not gonna catch the geese. Luna, they fly. Luna. Oh my God. Hopefully they don't try to knock her under the water. I don't think so. Oh my God, she's still swimming out. Okay, Catherine's gotta go get her dog. Here. <laughs> yeah. Luna, come here right now. Oh my god. Sorry. No, you're you know totally good. There's accounts of them drowning dogs and I'm like, Oh really? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I didn't know that. Yeah, they'll f Yeah. But it would have to be like a very aggressive goose. Well, I, she's never swam that much before. Okay, Luna's coming back to shore. The geese are still very pissed off, but They're actually coming back to shore for her, I think. <laughs> Yeah, the ge now the geese are chasing her. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. Come here, Luna. Luna. <laughs> Luna, come. Come on, girl. Come Leave here, Luna. It. Come Leave on. It. Come. She did roll, so I'm kind of glad she swam. Yeah. That Luna, is come right now. Let's go. Okay, here she is. Oh, Lord. Oh, uh, she's so back. proud of herself. Okay, no, 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 no. <laughs> God. No! no! Oh, she Bad shook dog. herself all over. <laughs> I was worried about the rain, but I should have been worried about the I know. Dog. Down right now. Down. Oh, my gosh. Go <laughs> I know you were trying to catch your, father, your uncle. Luna, <laughs> no, stop. Lay down. Lay down. I brought a goose down. for a Dirty Bird. I know. Lay down. Listen. The story. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, nope, perfectly fine. <laughs> <laughs> she spared the geese. They spared her. All right, Luna, we're reaching the end, so just be patient. <laughs> so yeah, retrobulbar teratoma, a tumor behind the eye of that of that poor heron. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, the main mortality source for blue herons, though, especially nestlings, is starvation. Um, schools of fish are unpredictable. You never know when and where they will be. Um, in fact, the reason blue herons nest in colonies probably isn't for like a reason like safety in numbers, um, but rather because they can engage in social foraging. Like one blue heron will find a spot with fish, come back to his nest with fish, the other herons notice, and then they're going to follow him out to his productive fishing spot. Yeah. Overall, populations of blue herons are steady or increasing. Um, current estimates are around 83,000 breeding birds, which I actually thought was kind of low because, like, Me I too. see them so much. But I guess just because they're so big and so, like, prevalent or, like, easily spottable right. that, you know, it seems like there's, like, millions out there. But, yeah, actually, it's only 83,000. Um, the reason why the population is increasing, though, is likely because um, of what a big hit that they took in the past. You know, European settlers in America drained the wetlands. They trapped beavers, and beavers were main creators of, like, good habitat for herons. Um, they also hunted them, and then pollution also took a toll on these guys. So, like, there's some states, like Illinois, where great blue herons were, like, pretty much completely wiped out. And now they're starting to make a comeback and return. So we're seeing the population's uh, levels increase, but probably they're kind of, you know, returning back to kind of their more normal levels, and that's why they're increasing. It all traces back to beavers, I'm learning, with, like, changing, yeah. the changing ecology and the changing landscape. I mean... I know. Yeah. It's all about beavers. <laughs> this is what we found, folks, in yep. this heron podcast. <laughs> um, 
There is one subspecies of herons that is endangered. There, there's several subspecies of herons. Um, I usually don't go into the thick of it with subspecies, but this one's pretty remarkable. It's in southern Florida, um, and it's a great blue heron, but it's actually all white, and it's known as the great white heron. Um, it looks a lot like white egrets that live in the same habitat, but you can tell them apart by the legs. Great egrets will have black legs, while great white herons will have yellow legs and just kind of look chunkier overall. <laughs> um, development of the wetlands in southern Florida and also increased boat traffic have disturbed a lot of great white heron habitat. Um, and without conservation efforts, they may go extinct. So Ooh. let's protect them. Yeah. The great white heron, that white subspecies, will sometimes interbreed with other subspecies of blue herons and produce a hybrid known as Wundermann's heron, maybe Wundermann's. Um, wow. And uh, it has a blue-gray body, but a white head. That sounds beautiful. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty cool see. looking. Yeah. The oldest known blue heron was 24 years and 6 months and was found in Texas. Oh. Yeah. So um, we'll wrap up with evolution of great blue herons. Um, the evolution can sometimes always get convoluted, so <laughs> feel free to interject if I start losing you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love, I love that stuff. So herons, along with a lot of wading and shorebirds, are a fairly ancient lineage of birds. Um, the seabird clade first branched off from other bird ancestors around 79.6 million years ago. Uh, that was kind of right after the major extinction event that killed off the dinosaurs. Um, from there, the clade continued to split, producing families of diving birds, penguins, storks, and pelagic birds like albatrosses. Herons, however, formed out of the family Pelicanformis. As the name implies, this order contains pelicans, but also ibises, spoonbills, and the very derpy-looking shoebill. Have you seen shoebills? Yes. Yeah, like on planet Earth, like they have them. <laughs> yeah. um, Interestingly, the similar-looking cranes are not part of the group uh, Pelicanformis. Uh, they're not closely related to herons. Um, rather, they just have similar bodies from a convergent evolution. Of the Pelicanformin birds, though, the ibises and spoonbills are the most closely related to herons, and they're a cystotaxa, meaning they share like a common ancestor that split off around 51 million years ago um, to form the two different groups. Herons, bitterns, and egrets form a closely related family called Ardeidae. Um, separating these groups of herons versus bittern versus egret is a little arbitrary now when you look at the genetics. In the past, they were kind of grouped solely on appearance. Like, if it was white, it was called an egret. Um, if it was small, it was a bittern. Um, but now when you look at the evolutionary tree, like, stuff that was once called, like, a bittern is actually way more closely related to herons. And then there's, like, some egrets that are actually way more closely related to herons than they are to other egrets. Um, so I'll just refer to the whole family, uh, Ardea Day, as herons from now on, just to make it easier. Yeah. Anyway, around 51 million years ago, this family of birds began to form. Uh, while paleontologists have only found scarce fossils from this time period, a bit of ankle bone here or a sternum there, um, these ancient herons appear to be on the small side, uh, most resembling modern-day night herons. So it's kind of my sus suspicion, I never saw this stated anywhere, that the common ancestor to all herons was likely small, not the big bulky hunter um, like that we see today with the great blue herons. Which I thought was a little surprising because when you look at a great blue heron, you're like, dinosaur, yeah. you know. And so you'd think like maybe that would be the first one. But no, it's probably actually like a small little uh, wading bird. Like and then green like, heron size? Yeah, maybe? yeah. Or like night heron size? Yep, exactly. As far as where herons first evolved, that's kind of up in the air. 
The greatest diversity in the heron family occurs in the tropics and subtropics of South America. So several researchers have suggested that this is the origin of the family, but there's other fossils um, from the Pelicanformis group. Um, the oldest ones uh, are found in Africa, and so maybe the heron started out there. Others suggest an Asian origin. Um, one thing I could find is that herons in the fossil record don't appear in Europe until the Oligocene era. Um, so that's later than the proto-heron fossils that have been found in other countries. So this suggests that herons definitely didn't start in Europe and instead colonized it from somewhere else. But wherever they started, it appears it wasn't until the Miocene era that the precursors of our modern herons evolved. The Miocene started about 23 million years ago. It was characterized by warmer climates that fostered extensive grasslands, kelp forests, and wetlands. The zigzag heron and the whistling heron of South America are some of the oldest members of this family. They evolved around 31.9 million years ago um, and around 22.5 million years ago, respectively. The boat-billed herons also appear to be one of the more ancient heron lineages. Um, and as the Miocene ended around 5 million years ago, the climate cooled drastically um, and some herons went extinct or evolved into others um, and some of our more modern species we know today evolved. Around 5 to 5.5 million years ago in modern-day Levy County, Florida, um, an ancient heron species roamed alongside rhinoceros, antelope, and hyena-like canines. Just imagine that. Just <laughs> yeah, stop I know. and imagine that for Arad a moment. Yeah, a Florida that's way more like Africa, yeah. you know. Um, and so this heron was termed Tafophoix hagiae. It appears to be a direct relative of the tiger herons um, that we have today, and like them, it was small. The large-bodied herons appear to have evolved independently many times. Um, for example, the bittern branch of herons contains some of the largest and also some of the smallest of the heron species. So it wasn't like one big heron evolved and then all the big herons that we have today came from it. Like, right. Yeah, they were kind of, body size seemed to kind of be a, in flux with these guys. Okay. Around 15 million years ago, it appears there was some kind of large heron ancestor that was branching off into other species. Um, this is when we see the branch that will give off the great egret form. Um, of note, they're uh, well called an egret, the great egret, which you often see hunting like right alongside great blue herons. Um, it's actually way more closely related to the great blue heron than it is to other egrets like the snowy egret. Mm. From there, more big herons formed um, for like the largest heron of them all, the Goliath heron, which is native to sub-Saharan African formed. Um, but the great blue heron itself differentiated from its closest relatives, the gray heron of Europe and the Kokoi heron of South America around 2.4 million years ago. <laughs> if you look at pictures of the gray heron and the Kokoi heron, um, they look a lot like great blue herons, like almost exactly alike. <laughs> um, but uh, they have those same black plumes on top of their head, very similar body coloration. So it's uh, kind of obvious that they're closely related. Yeah. So there you go. That's kind of the messy and incomplete history of the evolution of herons. Um, if you compare birding books over the years, you'll notice there's a lot of contradictory naming conventions and classifications. Like, this stuff changes a lot. Um, and, you know, in the past, they grouped them just on how they looked or how their bones looked. And then now we're realizing that, like, no, with genetics, like, we're kind of able to tell a lot more information. But it's still pretty murky. Yeah. Yep. All right, so I'll wrap up just with a couple quick heron facts. Um, Kat, is there anything, like, any other heron stories or any reflections from this episode? I just have really enjoyed learning more about this creature that I see often around the marina and on the shoreline. 
my favorite morning view, and I think I can say the same for the family that lives here in Tall Timbers, the meat yards, is just looking down the beach and seeing a line of blue herons, you know, all fishing in the morning. Yeah. And then maybe a dog running down the beach to scare them and all to off. to chase them off. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Luna. <laughs> but they're such peaceful hunters, and I think it's good to hear more about the other side. They're sort of these silent killers that are like yeah. surfing turf all day and um, <laughs> can really probably take down bigger creatures than I realized, but yeah. but I've really enjoyed it. I think this yeah. is pretty cool. I think my favorite thing is the them sword fighting with their bills. Yeah. I would love to see that. That's Me really too. cool. Bucket list, birding bucket list. Yep. <laughs> so I'll just wrap up with some kind of like herons and humans facts here. There's a folk tale that herons build two holes in their nest for their legs or they'll straddle their nest like a saddle. <laughs> I can see how people would think that. You see there's giant legs and you got to think like, oh, they must have little holes in their nest that they just <laughs> plop their feet in. Where do they go? Yeah, like a high chair. Yep. Um, there's also folk tales um, that herons would wiggle their toes to make them look like worms to attract fish. Um, <laughs> and uh, this myth that heron toes attract fish seems to have been widespread enough that in like the 1700s, there's a formula for a fish attracting paste and it contains heron's feet as an ingredient. Wow. It also contains cat and human fat. So, huh. <laughs> a few theories there. Hunting yeah. <laughs> Blue herons often uh, are blamed for lots of losses of fish at fish farms. Uh, the two biggest ones I saw were on trout farms and on channel catfish farms. However, a paper studying blue herons on channel catfish farms found that they mainly were feeding on catfish that were either sick or already dead from disease, um, and they rarely ever caught like a live healthy catfish. So actually they're probably helping fish farms by removing possible sources of infection from the water. <laughs> That's Excuse interesting. Me. They must have really strong gut flora to be able to process all that stuff too. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, they do have really strong like stomach acid because you know they'll eat all kinds of crazy right. stuff. Right. And a lot of it's probably still alive while they scoff or scarf it down. You know. Yeah. Um, blue herons do seem to really like fish bait tanks outside tackle shops though and oftentimes we'll wait for all the people to leave at night and then go perch on it and pick out a bunch of minnows. Smart. <laughs> um, John James Audubon of course ate some of the herons he shot and, uh, and said that while the young fresh off the nest were tolerable eating, older herons didn't taste as good and he would have much rather preferred a crow or a young eagle. <laughs> wow. Yep. Um, John James Audubon was also kind of crazy with his cooking. Um, he says one time he cut open the stomach of a blue heron he had just shot and found a fresh perch, which he then proceeded to cook up and serve to his companions. It's like a turducken, <laughs> but a heron. <laughs> fish, fish heron. Jeez. <laughs> He must have been uh, really hungry. I mean, he must yeah. have been yeah, I guess, starving, maybe? I think he just liked to just eat a lot of different stuff. It was wow. kind of like a connoisseur. <laughs> he was like, you know, his dad was French, so, yeah. <laughs> little French kicking of the forest yeah. that we don't know about. Some herons, like the black-crowned night heron, have been observed using bread to catch fish. They'll literally, like, pick up a piece of bread, drop it in the water, and wow. then uh, eat fish when they come to munch on the bread. While great blue herons have never been observed doing exactly this, if they notice like some bread floating in the water or like people feeding fish, they'll take advantage of that and come over to the Smart. like to the bait. Yeah, that's cool. The night yep. herons my favorite. Yeah, I love night herons. Hopefully, I'll do an episode on them sometime. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. Um, that's the end of our episode. Thanks for hanging out with us at Tall Timbers, Maryland, in this pine forest, where we were getting rained on 
having to control a dog from chasing <laughs> the geese. Um, Things got interesting. Huh? Yeah, dealing with uh, ticks crawling on us, but uh, <laughs> we had a good time with it. It was worth it. Thank you for having me on, and thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you, Kat. You're always so much fun to talk with. So uh, that's the show. Um, you know, send me emails, uh, dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com. Check out our Instagram at dirtybirdpodcast. And as always, stay dirty, my birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, and our rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks everyone for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Our logo is made by TJ Ranoski, with inspiration from my beautiful fiance, Lauren. Love you, babe, even though you don't listen to the show. Our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, and our outro is by the Sidewalk Slammers. Find them wherever you get your music. Send listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at dirtybirdpodcast. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Reddit, you name it, Dirty Bird's been there. track drive into Brooklyn ain't never coming back Tim's on the ground in the concrete jungle I might get into 